I would ask that you would take God's Word into your hands and open to the book of Ruth with me this morning. It never seems to amaze, ceases to amaze me that uh, every time those kids walk out, it always grips my heart in two ways. One, I'm excited to see kids go and have an opportunity to learn in their own way and, uh, and that, but it's always for a preacher difficult to see people get up and leave when you're coming up to the pulpit. So we'll, that will humble me uh, continually, so that's, that's good. But uh, we've been looking for the last uh, th- uh, four weeks at the book of Ruth. If you haven't found the book of Ruth yet, start at the beginning of the Bible, one of the pew Bibles in your pews, and start in the book of Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then the book of Ruth. It's four chapters long. And for the rest of the summer, we are going to spend looking at this incredible book that uh, talks about love and redemption, and the redemption of a young woman named Ruth. And today we find ourselves in chapter 2 of that incredible book. If you have not been able to be with us the last uh, month or missed out, we have CDs on the first three messages that came from Ruth 1, but we enter into what the commentators say is a transitional part of the text. Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning, where we look at the first three verses of that second chapter. Now, a lot of preachers don't like preaching uh, verse by verse out of the Old Testament for these very reasons. Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, has a lot of different things going on, and it's very difficult to outline a, a sermon, but I'm going to give you my best try at it, and we're going to look at these three amazing verses as we continue to unpack this story about Ruth. And as you're turning to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, I want to ask you a question this morning. What is it that you dream about? What is it that you desire to take place in your life? What in your life do you wish would happen? It seems quite common in our world today that we are a people of dreamers. It seems that we have a desire to see something take place in our lives, that we have a certain picture of what our future should involve or how it should unfold. There are certain things in our lives that we wish would take place and we find ourselves, whether during work or at play or in our homes or in the car, dreaming about what may happen. As Americans, we've been given the motto, the American dream. We are the only nation I know of that has a dream as a nation, and that is that we as American citizens are given the dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our world, or I'm sorry, as our nation, we find ourselves trying to pursue that life of happiness. And we do it in a lot of different ways. While the dreaming that we have seems constant, that every person, if you were to go and we were to do a survey, I'm almost positive that every one of us would have a certain dream or a certain picture or a certain thing we would want to accomplish in our lives. But the difference is is how they uh, come about and the things that we do dream about. Now, what, what happens is when we dream about these things, we plan, we begin to pursue, we begin to position ourselves in places to allow those dreams to become fulfilled. Many people pursue the dream of pursuing riches. And hundreds of thousands of people take their paychecks and they head off to riverboats and uh, to casinos and they go with the thought that just maybe today 
the slot machines will fall right where they need to. I'll get all the cherries across or all the bananas and that money will begin to pour out. While others go to convenience stores and gas stations and they go and they grab pieces of paper that say the word lotto on it. And they find out and they say, only if I pick just the right numbers and those right balls come out in that big bubble, then my life will be different. I was watching this last week on the Entertainment Network, the true Hollywood story of lotto winners' lives gone bad. And it chronicled all these people that won multi-million dollar prizes, thinking their life would be great after winning the lotto. And what happens? It was a curse. The money they received, they wanted to get rid of it so quickly because they did not know what to do with it. A dream that they thought they wanted. So the America, as Americans, we pursue those things. Others pursue possessions. We find ourselves, if you were to go today, you would find people going out and spending all kinds of money on things that they don't need. Now, I'm not talking about groceries. I'm not talking about essential items. But we find ourselves buying all different kinds of toys and gadgets that we think will make our life better, that we dream about. But in fact, we find them just filling up our garages or our storage units and we dream about those things. Others here who struggle with sickness or illness find themselves dreaming for a time where they'll be healthy, dreaming for a time that a right medication or a right treatment will come, and you find yourself dreaming and pursuing those things because you're sick or you're hurting. Yet another, some of our singles here, are dreaming about the Prince Charming that they're waiting for. Or maybe you're waiting for your Snow White or your Cinderella and you're looking forward to that and you're saying, only if I could find that right person. Some married people may be asking the same question. They said, he looked like Prince Charming, but uh, I didn't. I had LASIK surgery and I found out. No, just kidding. But you're, you're hoping that if I find just the right person, that at the end or above my life, the word happily ever after will follow. And that storybook ending, and people dream about the person that God will bring into their lives. Still others dream about having a child and having a different job and dreaming about all different kinds of things. We find ourselves dreaming. We are a group of dreamers. And what I've learned about my own dreams is that they direct you. They are your acceleration. They are, if you will, the, uh, the steering wheel and the gas pedal to your life. Whatever you're dreaming about today, and I want you to think about that as I'm preaching this message. What is it that has your attention? What is it that you're thinking about that you sit there and say, if I only had this, or if I was only able to do that, my life would be so much different. Because what happens is, is that dream will begin to direct you in one direction or another. It's going to be what accelerates you. Now, there are people, there are many people, and guys, we're really bad at this. If we have a dream about something, we are willing to work 90 hours a week to make that dream come true. I always love going to Cubs games, and it's amazing that as I see that day approaching where I've got tickets to a ball game, it's amazing not being a morning individual. I will make sure I get up at the crack of dawn just to make sure I'm there for batting practice right on time. It's amazing that dreams that we have, pursuits that we have, will begin to move us in that direction. Well, if that's the case, if we are a group of dreamers, the question we have to ask as Christians is, first of all, is it wrong to dream? No, it's not wrong to dream. It's good to think and and, uh, look at what we may be doing in the future. But what kind of dreams ought we have? 
What kind of dreams should be the ones that we pursue? Now, the world tells us to dream about riches, to dream about positions, to dream about all the things of this world. And the Bible says, Jesus is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. You don't have to turn there, but he says about eating and drinking, about where you're going to go in Matthew chapter 6. He says that the pagans run after all these things, but the Heavenly Father knows what you need. The pagans pursue all these things. All the things of this world that we go after and that we pursue, the Bible says that we ought not to pursue those things. We should be pursuing other things. But what happens is is we find ourselves falling prey to what the world dreams about instead of what we dream about and what God wants us to be dreaming about. If you think about it for a moment, if you are a non-believer here, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior from this point or before, I will tell you, your world is a life of broken dreams. Think about it for a moment. If your life is all about how much you make, or what you own, or where you live, or what you attain in life, at the end the Bible says that the judgment day will come and everything of this world will be burned. Think about that for a moment. All the things that you spent your 80 or so years working on, all of a sudden it's put into a box and it's set on this holy conveyor belt and at the end of the belt there's this big fire and there's nothing left. Talk about broken dreams. But sadly, we as Christians fall prey to that. And the reason why we fall prey to it is because the world markets dreams. I've thought about this numerous times. Disney has a major announcement that came out in January of 2007, and they made this year the year of a million dreams. They want people to understand they're anticipating that a million families will make the trek to Walt Disney World in Orlando. And what they're saying is, is if you vacation with us, your dreams will come true. I was reading in the Tribune a couple of weeks ago, and a building company was saying that if you buy a house from us, your dreams will find their home. Even our homes, we say, well, our dreams will come true if we just get that right house with just that right garage in that right neighborhood. Then everything will be just right. America is always bad at taking it to an extreme. I was watching television a couple of weeks ago, and a mattress commercial came up, and it was from the betting experts. And if you know the lo- slogan of the betting experts, they say it's where dreams come true. I saw some people mouthing that. You guys are pathetic. If you have just the right mattress, if you have just the right uh, place to lay your head, your dreams will come true. Sadly, that is not the case. In our text this morning, I believe we find out how we're to dream. I I see how we are to live up to pursuing that dream. So I would ask that you would uh, stand as we read together the Word of God this morning from Ruth chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 1 through 3, and this is what it says. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And and Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, 
who was from the clan of Elimelech. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that You will bless this time that we are in Your Word. Father, I pray that we will dream right dreams. Father, I pray that as we pursue what You have for us, that in the end we will find Your favor. In the end we will find Your blessing. Lord, I pray that we will be like Ruth and we will be like Boaz as we learn more about them today in learning how You redeem Your people. Those who are far off, You bring them back to save them and to meet their needs in abundant ways. So, Lord, transform us as we open Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, tells us how we are to dream. I want you to look at verse 2 for a moment, because the answer is found in verse 2. It says that Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. If you underline in your Bible, underline that last phrase. In whose eyes I find favor. You want to know how you are to dream? What Ruth is hoping for, what she's wishing for, what she's dreaming about is that now she's in this land, and we're going to get a quick history here in a moment. She's in this land of Bethlehem, a foreigner, a stranger. She only knows her mother-in-law, and she finds herself going, and she says, Naomi, I'm going to go out into the fields, and I hope and pray that I find someone who will not only like me, but who will help me and take care of me. She is looking for unmerited favor from someone greater than herself. That is what we should be dreaming about as Christians. It's not about vacations. It's not about pursuing things of this world. It is about finding favor in the eyes of someone greater than ourselves. Now you would say, Tim, don't we already find favor in the eyes of God? Yes, if you're a child of God, you have found favor in His eyes. You have a legal standing of being found in favor with God. But we don't live that way. And what I want to teach you throughout this text is that God has certain ways that we are to live in light of the favor that God has for us. Back in that passage in Matthew chapter 6, it says that the pagans run after all these things. But what what does Jesus say to His people? He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Do you want to know what you should be dreaming about? you want to know what you should be pursuing? Not the things that you see in today's um, newspaper ads, but you should be pursuing the kingdom of God. Now, how is that manifested in our life? We are to be pursuing certain things in our life. Another time in the text, the Bible talks about that Jesus says, you know what you're supposed to be doing? You are to love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he says, you are to love your neighbor as himself. Now think about that for a moment because Jesus says something. He says all that the prophets spoke about are contained, if you will, in those two commands. If you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength, your vertical relationship with God will be right on. If you love your neighbors as yourself, then your horizontal relationship will be right. And what he's saying is, is that the cross, or at the middle of that crossing point, is the favor of God. And that's what we're going to see with uh, Ruth this morning. Of course, we've been looking at this text. Ruth chapter 1 opens up telling us about this man named Elimelech. 
Elimelech is hanging out in the place of Bethlehem, the same place where Jesus was born. There's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. So Elimelech says, you know what? There's not much food here, so what are we going to do? Naomi, my wife, and my two boys, the Klingon brothers, Malon and Kilion, were heading out to a place called Moab. Moab's about 50 miles to the east of Bethlehem. So they head out to this place called Moab. Now, Moab is known as a place that is sexually perverse in their practices. And Moab also is a place that worships foreign gods, a god by the name of Chemosh. Now, they spend 10 years there. And the 10 years away from the famine, they thought would be pretty good. But they end up to be 10 of the worst years anybody could ever experience. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow. The text tells us later in chapter 1 that Malon and Kilion, the two boys, find wives from Moab. One's name was Orpah, the other one's was Ruth. Now they get married, and things seem to be going all right, but soon thereafter their marriages take place, both Malon and Kilion both kick the bucket as well. So it leaves three women in Moab, three widows. The text tells us that then Naomi hears that God has come to the aid of his people by giving them food during this famine. So she says, you know what? I'm packing everything up. Let's head out, two young ladies. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Let's go back to my home. Halfway down the journey as they're walking back to uh, Bethlehem from Moab, what happens? Naomi says, you know what? It's probably better that you two ladies stay here. Your family's back in Moab. Your life, your culture, your religion is all back there. So you know what? I want you to go back to Moab. Orpah sits there and says, you know what? Maybe Naomi's right. I'll head back to Moab. But the Bible says that Ruth clings to Naomi. And she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you go, not even death will separate us from one another. So the two women come back to Bethlehem. In the end of chapter 1, we see that they enter into Bethlehem, and we've got Naomi. And she walks in, and everyone says, hey, Naomi, how you doing? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And she goes off on this tangent about how bad God has been to her. But at the end of chapter 1, it says that they came at the time where the barley harvest was beginning. And I told you two weeks ago that what that is, is that is the author giving us a picture that better days are coming. And what we see is this opening part of chapter two, and it unveils the beginning of something new and something special. And within that, we see three things I want to explore. The first thing we see is that if you want a dream to come true, now remember what the dream is. The dream is not pursuing things for yourself, but it is pursuing the things of God. And if you want to pursue those things, then your dreams can come true. And this is how they come true. First of all, they can come true amidst the problems and circumstances of life. Amidst the problems and circumstances of life. Chapter 2 opens up one day after they've entered into Bethlehem. Chapter 1 is a span of 10 years. Now we're going to see the story begin to shorten up very quickly. Chapter 2 happens in one day. It's all going to happen within 24 hours, kind of like that TV show that we watch, 24. Everything happens all within one time, one day. And the thing I want you to understand is this. Chapter 1 is very bad for Naomi. Very bad for Ruth. And there are people here today who are living in lives that are chapter 1. 
Maybe death has caused you pain. Maybe trial has caused you trouble. Maybe there's something happening in your life where things aren't going the way you would want them to. That's chapter 1 of Ruth. And there are people here today, and you've talked with me, and some of you are struggling silently and saying, I am living in chapter 1. Nothing is going right for me. So how can you talk about dreams? How can you talk about that? The amazing thing is, chapter 1, 10 years. Chapter 2, 1 day. Here's the very simple fact of it. When you are in the favor of God, and you begin to walk obediently with God, no matter how long your trials have gone, understand this, it just takes but one day for everything to change. Ruth and Naomi are struggling. Ten years. Think about how many days that is. 30,000. Um, let's see here. Ten. Al, help me out. How many days is in ten years? Is that 3,000? 3, 3,000. Thank you. Okay, I only got to algebra with the seventh graders. So I had to think about that. 3,000 days of bad going on, of questions being left unanswered. And what happens? In one day, everything changes. That doesn't mean that's always going to happen. Maybe you've got another 10 years of trouble that is coming. But knowing that you've got God on your side, knowing that you are working and and uh, willing to follow God no matter how bad things come, God says it takes but one day for it to happen. He says there's crying and weeping at night, but there is dancing in the morning. And I want to encourage the hearts of those that are struggling today. Don't think that your dreams have been shattered. Don't think that you cannot pursue the favor of God. Pursue it with all your heart, even when trials and troubles are there. But we see when they enter into Bethlehem, some things take place. First of all, we see that what happens is, is that they get to Bethlehem and they've still got some troubles. Look at what it says in uh, verse 1 and 2. It says they enter into Bethlehem, and they tell us about this guy named Boaz, who we'll get to in a moment. But then there's a dialogue. I told you that because there's so many women in this story, there's a lot of talking going on back and forth. And there's another dialogue, because that's what women do. They talk, and they start talking, Naomi and Ruth. And the talking that happens is, all right, we need something. Look at what it says they need, because we see that when they get to Bethlehem, They need food. That's the first thing. They need food. And when they get there, they need to get some food, sustenance. So what does it say? It says that Ruth is going to go out and she's going to try to find food. It says next that not only did they need food, but they had no friends. The text makes no mention of anybody opening their home and saying, Ruth and Naomi, come with us. Now, we're not sure if that was the case or wasn't. But if someone would have invited them in, you're almost positive that they would have fed them. What host would bring in two people, two widows, and say, okay, we can give you shelter, but you're going to have to go find food on your own. So it seems that there was no friends in the life of Naomi and Ruth when they get to Bethlehem. The final thing we see is that they had no favor. And what I mean by that there was no favor, nothing seemed to be going right with them. Now, remember, why did Naomi head back to Bethlehem in the first place? She headed back there because she heard that God was coming to the aid of his people. Understand this, when trials and trouble come, that just because God brings you through trials and troubles, maybe back to his people, or maybe back in the church, the moment you sit down in a pew at church or involve yourself in a small group, doesn't mean your circumstances are going to change. 
Just because you position yourself. Naomi did the right thing. She comes back to Bethlehem. She positions herself right. But understand, that didn't take care of all her problems. I had an individual a couple years ago come to the church for two weeks. And they said, I've got all these kinds of issues and all these kinds of problems. And they came. And after the second week, he said, you know what? My problems have not been fixed. I thought God would be able to fix them, but he didn't. I haven't seen them back since. And there's a lot of people that are that way. God, I'll give you a couple weeks. God, I'll give you this amount of time. And if you don't fix my problems, I'm done. That's not the way you fulfill the dreams that God has for you. You have to give God time. And it may be a lifetime waiting for God to take care of him. But understand this. A promise that is true is that maybe your life here on earth is full of troubles. It's full of all kinds of circumstances. You've got to watch the toys that are down here. almost fell on a car. <laughs> That'll take your mind off things. It's falling down. That's good. Kids are playing in the sanctuary. So, okay. It's probably my son's. So what happens? What we do is we put a timeline on God. Here's the promise that God gives. God says this life may be very difficult for you. And maybe God has allowed difficulties like Job to fill your life. Here's the promise. Your life here on earth may be very difficult. But God promises that one day you will stand before Almighty God and everything will be different. And maybe you're struggling. You say, well, Naomi waited 10 years. I'm in year 15 or I'm in year 75. And things haven't gotten better. They may not get better here on earth. But God promises that when we stand before him, everything for eternity will be completely different. It's not just about position. Now, look at what it says that Ruth does. In verse 2, she pleads with her mom. She says, mother-in-law, she says, let me go. This is in the Hebrew, a pleading. She's saying, please, Naomi, let me go and find food. Now, this shows us how we are to struggle. In times of struggle, Ruth shows us three very quick things that are not in your outline. Number one, it says that even when you're struggling, keep working. Keep doing what God calls you to do. Just because things are tough. When, when Amanda and I struggle, there are weeks that I don't want to get up and preach. Okay? The, the last thing I want to do is get up and, and talk about what God is working on in my life. But you know what God says? Tim, even when you're struggling, even when there's trouble, you still need to do what I've called you to do. And I've heard so many different people in my life that have given up on ministry, that have given up on a lot of things because they say it's just not working out. It's better that I just kind of sit on the sidelines. Don't do that. Keep working. Keep your hands to the plow and keep working. Initiative. Ruth chose an amazing amount of initiative. She says, all right, mother-in-law, we're here in Bethlehem. You brought us here, and we got no food. And if we've got no food, someone needs to go out and work. The second thing we see is that not only does she go and work, but the work that she does is not proud. So what she's willing to do is put away her pride and humble herself. The word that she talks about is the older word that we hear a lot is gleaning. This gleaning. She says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. We're going to talk about gleaning in a moment. But what she does is she goes and picks up the scraps after the harvest is done. This is something that is associated with poverty. This is people that are hurting, people that are struggling. Those are the type of people that would go do this activity. Let me tell you something. Don't ever be too proud to work 
to fix your situation. Don't ever be too proud to ask people for help. You know, we have this gift of benevolence. And many times when we give this gift of benevolence out, what we've just collected money for, for people that are struggling, for people that are, are having difficulty, we give it and they say, you know, no, no, I don't need it, I don't need it, even though they do need it. And we all have this pride within us. Nobody wants a handout. I remember one time we were having difficulty with a car and our small group came together and put together a wonderful monetary gift back to us to take care of the car. And I was never so mad in my life. And I got in the car and I said, Amanda, it is my job to take care of the people, not their job to take care of me. And Amanda says, what are you talking Have you heard the preacher at Village Bible Church? That's not what he says. That's not what he said. But yet it's the pride. We don't want anybody to take care of us. But what does Ruth do? She says, you know what? We've got no other choice. I'm going to go out and I'm going to pray that someone can help us. Next, she goes and she pursues a person who's greater than herself. In your times of difficulty, your times of struggle, don't go looking for government handout or ways to break down your taxes to try to get help. Go to the one who has the only answer for your need, and that's God. She's going to run into this guy named Boaz. Boaz is what Old Testament scholars call is a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus Christ. Boaz is the one who's going to come, and he's going to give us a picture of what Jesus is all about. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer that we're going to learn about later on in the summer. And what that means is in our times of difficulty, you can go and try to band-aid them with the different help, but before you do anything else, you pray, God, I want to find favor in your eyes. It begins by me finding favor with you. So she goes and she begins to glean. She begins to work in that way. Well, there's a second thing we see in this text, and that is that dreams can come true because of God's providence, not because of chance. Dreams can come true because of God's providence, not chance. Now, this is important. We're going to see in the text, in fact, look at verse 2. It says that she goes out and she says, All right, Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go pick grain from a field. So she walks out wherever she's at, if it's some sort of cave or some sort of tent. She walks out, and she's never been in Bethlehem before, so she's not sure where to go. And she just makes a decision that I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to pick up grain from this field. Now, the text uses terminology that doesn't seem to fit Scripture. The text says in the NIV, it says, as it turned out. Other translations say that by chance... Ruth picked uh, Boaz's field. Another one says that it just so happened. Another said that as luck would have it. Now, if you read those in your translations, I would hope that a question would come in your mind and say, that doesn't seem to follow along the principle that luck doesn't play a part in the life of people. That it's not about luck. It's not about chance. So what is the author trying to tell us? The author is telling us something very important, and that is the book of Ruth is all about people's lives, people living, 
People dying, people moving, people coming back home, people struggling with God, people rejoicing in God, people going and working and through the daily activities, people falling in love, people getting married, people having babies. That's the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is all about people. And we see Naomi and we see Ruth and we see Boaz as key figures in the story. But there is one key figure above and beyond every one of them, including Ruth, who the book is named after, and that is God. God is interwoven into this story in every verse. God is there. He's involved in every detail of this, of this story. And I would tell you, He's involved in every detail of your life. We see God's providence in two things. First of all, we see God's providence in His commands in the past. The commands He had in the past. The text tells us that Ruth sets out to do this activity of gleaning. Well, where did this gleaning come from? Turning your Bibles back a couple books to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. So if you were in Ruth, you're going to go through Judges, Joshua, uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Numbers, Leviticus. It's doing the books backwards. Leviticus chapter 19. And this is what the text says. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Okay, this is where we read. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien, meaning the foreigner, not people from outer space. I am the Lord your God. Now turn a couple books over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. And Moses gives us a couple more words from the Lord. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. I love the sound of the turning of pages. I think for as long as I'm here preaching, you won't see Scripture on PowerPoint. You'll read it in the Word where it's supposed to be. Okay? Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheep, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Now look, why does, we, why does he command us to do this? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Here's the idea of gleaning. I'm sorry, of, of what they're supposed to do so that gleaning can take place. Landowners were to leave the corners of their fields 
there and not to harvest them. So if you will, if they had combines back in the day, they would combine everything else except for the four corners. Now, if they had the son, the teenage son, Ronnie, riding the combine, and he misses a part of the field, they're told, well, you can't go back, Junior. You leave that because there are going to be aliens, foreigners from another country. There are going to be widows and orphans who are going to come, and they are going to pick that for themselves. What it became was a food bank, a food pantry, or the welfare system. God said, I'm going to take care because I have compassion on those who are downtrodden, who are hurting, who don't have the means to take care of themselves. I'm going to take care of them. So what would happen is, is the fatherless, the widows, the ones that are foreigners in the land, they would come in and they would begin to pick barley and olives and grapes from the vineyard. They would pick them for themselves and it would be free of charge. Now we're going to learn later on that not all uh, landowners allowed for this. In fact, Boaz, we're going to see later on, calls for Ruth to be protected as a woman who is a foreigner as she gleans. So it seems that there was even uh, landowners who did not obey the law of the Lord in this way. Now, how does that show God's providence? God uses this problem that Ruth and Naomi have, the need for food, and God's providence is seen hundreds of years beforehand in the law of Moses that he says, all right, there are going to be people that are in need of food. And I believe with all my heart, God said, Ruth and Naomi are going to be in need of food. And I'm going to send them to Bethlehem. And their needs are going to be taken care of by this pursuit of gleaning that I've commanded in the past. There's a second thing we see. And that is God's providence involves his control in the present. It involves his control in the present. Now look at what it says. It says in verse 3, As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. Now this is amazing. Here Ruth goes. She has no idea she's within this divine plan of God. She's just living life. She isn't trying to figure out, okay, well, okay, if I was in God's plan, then he would want me to take a right. If I was in God's plan, then I'd pick this field over there. That's not what she does. She just, by her own free will, just continues to walk and say, you know what, I'm going to pick this field. And it says, by chance. Now, what it is, is here her human intention or her human thought is that she just did it by chance and the author writes that but god has determined something amazing to take place god is moving and he's uh, wooing ruth to a place to a field now this place is going to be a place that is owned by boaz boaz of course is a relative we'll learn in a moment of naomi's now god is going to use that chance meeting if you will that meeting that we say is by chance but god had in complete control He's going to take that meeting, and we're going to learn next week that that very day she meets Boaz. And that same day, there's love beginning to flow in the blood of Ruth and Boaz. And they see each other, and they start having eyes for one another. And like, hey, how are you? All right, I'm doing all right. How about you? And there's a love that begins to grow. And God brings these two people together, and they fall in love. And after they fall in love, they get married. And after they get married, they have a child. And that child's name is Obed. If you go to the last verse of the book, you'll see that Obed is a is one of the ancestors of King David. But not only is Obed an ancestor of King David, but of course we know that Jesus Christ is a relative of King David. and He is now a descendant of King David, which makes Ruth 
and Boaz and their union together makes forth an ancestor for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All because of a chance meeting? Hogwash. All because she picked right? No, that's nonsense. You know, we as Christians have this idea that, yes, God is in control, but, but we limit His control. And we say, well, He's only in control of certain things. God is in control of all things. He works all things out to the conformity of His will, the Scripture says. He is moving. I don't understand fully how that works within the, the realm of free will and free decision, but I've done this before. I've thought about God's providence in this way, and I, I wasn't going to talk about this, and I'm going to as, this, as the sermon goes on. I explain or describe free will as simply this. If you were to have an umbrella in your hands, and you were carrying the umbrella, the umbrella symbolizes God's providence in your life. Now, you're making decisions, and you're doing things, and you're saying, well, I'm going to go this way. As you go, you're within the providence of God. We you say, you know what? I don't want to go this way. I'm going to go this way. God is still in control of all these things. There's a theology going around called the open view of God that says God is a spectator according to man's decisions. So what he's doing is he's sitting up in heaven right now, and he's got limited control, but he's given me free will to make decisions as I will. But he does not know what my decisions will be. So he's sitting there, and he's looking, and he's saying, all right, Tim can either go right or left. What do you think he'll do, Jesus? I'm not sure. Let's wait and see. Okay, is Tim going to buy that red car or that blue car? What do you think, Holy Spirit? I'm not sure. Let's see what he does. That is not the God of Scripture. David says that you have ordained every one of my days. He's got them spelled out. Now you say, why is the providence of God so important? It's important in the good times and the bad. In the bad times, when calamities strike, when natural disasters hit, when trouble comes to our lives, if we've got a God in heaven who doesn't know what tomorrow will bring, then He is another little lackey in the boat of life who doesn't have a clue if you're going to make it or you're going to die. doesn't seem like a God that I want to worship. I want a God who says, everything is all okay, and it's rocky right now, Tim, but I've got control over the waves. Think about how that story would have changed had Jesus not had power and control over the circumstances of life when the disciples wake him up in the boat that's rocking to and fro. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, we're going to drown, we're going to drown, you don't care. And Jesus wakes up and he says, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? But many times, we as Christians change that story and make Jesus out to be that. And we say, Jesus doesn't know what He's going to do. Jesus doesn't know. He's just waiting to find out how circumstances fall. It helps us. It gives us ballast in that bottom of that boat to keep us from sinking when trouble comes. How does it help in good times? It creates humility. Because you may think, you know, I'm the greatest businessman. I'm the greatest salesman. I'm the greatest mom. I'm the greatest fan. We have the greatest family. We have the greatest decision making, all this. And we begin to lift ourselves up. Unless we remember that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And if we remember that, yes, we're called to work hard. Yes, we are called to be diligent in our business dealings. But understand this. As a businessman, I've learned this so very quickly. It's not about what I do, but it's about God's good favor in my life. God could take away everything we have in a moment. Or He can give us everything we would ever dream or wish for. And usually it's somewhere right in between. And it's from God's 
good hand. The struggles that you're facing, within the measure that God has allowed them and has willed them to take place, they will come to fruition. Whether you like it or not. But the good will happen as well. Remember the story of Job? Job's wife's all upset. And she says, curse God and die. We've lost our family. We've lost our fortune. We've lost all that we own. Now you've got all these boils all over you. Come on, Job. Curse God. Let's just call it a day and let's go do something else. And what does Job say? First of all, he calls the woman foolish. He says, you foolish woman. And then he says, can we not expect the bad from God? Or not the good from God, but also the bad. There's something we need to learn as Christians, that the providence of God is God's plan, His eternal decree before the foundations of the earth, that He has a plan. Some of it's revealed, other of it is not. But it's a will that is revealed that God says, it will take place just as I said. And we have to remember that. So when good times come, bad times come, we rejoice in a God who is in control of all things. That's the story of Ruth. Not a fairy tale about chance meetings, about eHarmony.com coming in and Boaz and Ruth meeting at the right time, but it is God working all things out. The book of Proverbs says that a man uh, may uh, walk and take steps, but God is the one who directs them. He directs them story of providence seen in the scriptures next we see the third and final point is that dreams can come true dreams can come true with the help from people who are christ-like a couple things before i close this message out ruth chapter 2 says now naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of elimelech a man of standing whose name was Boaz. In verse 3 it says, again, it repeats the same thing. He is a man named Boaz from the clan of Elimelech. Now, here we are introduced. Chapter 2 begins. Chapter 1's been bad, but chapter 2 begins with the trumpets. Now introducing at center stage, Boaz. Now, we learned about three other dudes in chapter 1. And commentaries are divided. I've got my own opinion on the three guys. Elimelech, <laughs> Malon, <laughs> Kilion, <laughs> Boaz. He's the man. Remember, Malon, Kilion, sickly, dying. Not want to name your kids that, okay? Just words of advice. Boaz, name your boys Boaz. We don't have enough Boazes in this church. Would a mother just name their son Boaz? He is the man. Commentaries have nothing but great things to say about this Boaz. Boaz walks around. People are like, how you doing, Boaz? He's like, how you doing? <laughs> he is the dude. Everything about Boaz you would like about him. I could, you know, he's got the looks of Brad Pitt. He's got the physique of young Arnold Schwarzenegger, not the older one. He's got the personality and the jokes of your favorite comedian, and this guy's put it all together. But to boot, he is a man of incredible character. And what happens is, is we see Boaz is introduced, and he's this shining light in a world of trouble. His entrance is a sign that things aren't as bleak as Naomi and Ruth may have thought that they were. J. Vernon McGee 
once said this of Boaz, of all the characters on the canvas of Scripture, no one is painted with more noble features than Boaz, except for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How would you like that to be said about you? No one better than you except for maybe, or not maybe, but Jesus Christ. (laughs) Why is it you guys laugh when I screw up? My jokes, you don't laugh. My screw-ups, my heretical statements, you uh, laugh at. Thank you. Here he is. He's this incredible guy. People speak well of him. Let me ask you this. Just quick application. If people talk about you, do they talk about you as a light in a world of darkness? Do they talk about you being not only a man of a good reputation, but a man or woman of great character? When they speak of you, do you think after your life is done that three to four hundred years later they'll still be talking about you? Solomon, when he builds his temple, he has two pillars. They are the cornerstone podiums of what hold up the temple. And he names one of those pillars Boaz. Think about that. 300, 400 years later from today, people are putting up a shrine to God. And they say, you know what? What should we name the pillars? I think we'll name them Tim Bidal. Okay, you shouldn't be laughing that loud. Okay? Are you that type of... Of person. Well, we got to learn just a couple quick things about Boaz. First of all, he's related to Naomi. The word uh, relative there in the NIV is the Hebrew word moda. Moda means a close relative. It gives the idea of intimacy. In uh, Proverbs chapter 7, it says that we should make wisdom our sister. And it's speaking about being an intimate thing. Make wisdom your close companion. That is what Boaz is defined here as. He is defined as someone of intimacy. Now, the word clan, it says the clan of Elimelech means in a larger family setting, not what I would call Amanda, Joshua, or Noah, my immediate family, but some sort of extended family. So the picture we get is he is a moda of the clan, which means that he is a distant relative that has intimacy with Naomi on Elimelech's side. This is maybe a cousin who has been close to the family. We're not sure. But next we see, not only is he related to Naomi, but he's a man of resources. A man of resources. Now, even the name Boaz speaks of strength, vitality, quickness. So if you were to see me last week at the Memorial Day picnic on the diamond, you would say, why is he named Tim? He should be named Boaz. That guy's quick. He's nimble. He's strong. He should be named Boaz. But now this word, it says he's a man of standing in your NIV. The the Hebrew word there is Gabor Hayil, which means a couple things. It's a compound statement. It means, first of all, he's a man of resources. And it gives the idea of power, vitality. It speaks about an intellectual prowess. This guy is smart, he's funny, he's a man that's got a lot of things going for him. Now the word hayil literally means a man of wealth or riches, but it means more than that. He is a man of substance. This idea here is that yes, he may be rich, but it's not that he was rich, if you will, just because he fell into it, but because he is such an incredible man. That just he's full, he's rich of all kinds of great things, which leads him to a man of respect. He's a man of respect. We're going to learn that Boaz is like E.F. Hutton. When Boaz talks, people listen. 
And what we're going to see in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 is that Boaz is this amazing character. So don't close your Bibles yet. Let me close with this thought. What do you do with this text? Remember, I'm talking about dreams. And we've kind of talked about dreams, and we've talked about they happen amidst the problems of life. We've talked about dreams happening amidst the providence of God. And now we've talked about this dude named Boaz, who we'll talk about next week in greater detail. How does all that work together? You want to fulfill the dreams that God has for you? You're one of two things. You're either Ruth, who is struggling and trying to find a way to make it happen. If that's the case, then pursue the favor of God. Go after it. Study your Bible. Pray. Get around God's people and begin to live a life that says it's all about God. It's not about me. Ruth went and she said, I'm going to do this and I hope and pray that someone will find, uh, that I'll find favor in the eyes of someone. And we find that she found Boaz. Maybe today you're not struggling and your life is going pretty well and you're a mature Christian. Then the question is, are you living like Boaz? Because maybe your dreams of finding the favor of God and the blessing of God have come true. Now it's not just to sit there and say, woohoo, I'm over here in the blessing of God. Oh, look at poor people over there. They don't have any blessing. They're downtrodden. The question you need to ask is, how can I be Boaz? And I'm going to tell you, you know how it began with Boaz? It meant that Boaz was willing to open up his pocketbook and give to those in need. Boaz was willing to go on behalf of someone weaker than himself and give all that he had. He even made Ruth his own. Remember what happens. Boaz says, go ahead and glean in my field. Take whatever you need. Boaz is always giving to Ruth. Maybe you're finding the blessing of God this morning, the favor of God. Now it's your job to be a blessing to someone else. Ray once preached a message, we are blessed to be a blessing. That's what Boaz did. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You. And Lord, we praise You for uh, the opportunity to open Your Word. Father, I thank You that as we have opened Your Word, Your Word has taught us of some things. Father, Your Word has taught us that You are in control. Your Word has taught us that even in troubles and times of trial, we can always depend on You, knowing that with You it is but a matter of a nanosecond that You can change our circumstances. And Lord, I pray for those that are struggling through circumstances right now, through trials. I pray that they would be like Ruth who rises above them and continues to work and go about life knowing that God is for us who can be against us. So Lord, we pray that whether we're Ruth or Boaz, we would do all things to your glory, that we would receive your blessing and your favor and to push away the things of this world and make you our pursuit in all that we do. We love you and we give this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen.